from the Merck Park, USA. I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Everything is at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app. And take us with you anywhere in the world and listen to us in real time. But only if you download the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places uh, to get the uh, podcast of this program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and to get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. A great show on tap for you today. In our second hour, one of my favorite guests, the internationally renowned writer, cultural critic, and public intellectual regarded as one of the top 50 educational thinkers of the modern period, Dr. Henry Giroux on the growing cult of fascism in America. You do not want to miss our two today. That I can promise you. For that matter, you don't want to miss our three today either. By now, I hope you know that the third hour of my show for the entire month of February is the domain of the motivator, Les Brown, with his program, You've Got to Be Hungry. Yesterday was the first day of his Black History Month radio residency, and he slayed it. Yesterday's topic was, It's Possible. It's Possible. Today's topic, It's Necessary. It is necessary. By the way, the response to Les Brown was so intense, so overwhelming yesterday, that y'all crashed his website. That's real talk. You shut down the man's website. This is Les Brown, internationally known motivator. Uh, you have to know that the back end of his website, all of his portals, are pretty strong. Y'all back that Negro. I mean, you, 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 <laughs> you crashed his website yesterday. Uh, but the website is back up. And he is back up today uh, in hour three, our 11 a.m. hour. And by the way, if you miss him at 11 a.m. any day, uh, check him out on your way home at 6 p.m. Uh, before the uh, for the encore uh, presentation. Uh, but I was just talking to Les last night. They finally got it back up. But y'all literally crashed his website yesterday. Uh, so let there be no doubt. People are listening to KBLA Talk 1580, and we are glad about it. We commence today's program, though, in conversation about wealth building and economic empowerment with Dr. Patrick Graham, public policy and social sector leader for justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion. He is the former president and CEO of the Martin Luther King Center in Long Island. I am delighted to have Dr. Patrick Graham on this program. Dr. Graham, how are you today, sir? I am well. How are you? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I'm delighted to be here, delighted to have you on for the hour. Uh, a great deal to discuss. You may have heard, I don't know, uh, we've been playing a promo pretty heavily here. It turns out that this is, of course, Black History Month. On the last day of this month, we are uh, premiering uh, a, a radio play. Uh, it's called The Return, and it features uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X returning back to Earth. 55 plus years after their assassinations to engage in a conversation about contemporary issues. I happen to be the person who they decide to sit and talk to. So they come back to earth 55 plus years later for a conversation 
about contemporary issues. And so we see these issues that we're dealing with in real time, like the murder of Tyree Nichols, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, all kinds of issues that uh, black folk in the country are navigating their way through in real time here in late modernity. King uh, and, and Malcolm X have their say on these issues. What's amazing about it is and I think the audience will be completely blown away by the fact that none of this is made up. That everything that you will hear Martin and Malcolm say comes from what they had to say during their lifetimes, from their speeches, uh, from their presentations, from their writings. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to dig into the corpus of their work and I hope renew interest in all that Malcolm and Martin had to say beyond the things that we know, beyond the one-liners uh, that we know from Malcolm and Martin. So it's going to be an amazing a radio play, a wonderful director producing it. It's going to be live uh, on this program and on our, our on our platform. So we're excited uh, about this radio play called The Return on February the 28th. I raise that because given that you are the former uh, president and CEO of the King Center in Long Island, I am curious before we get too deep in this conversation, what you think Dr. King would have to say about this issue of D, E, and I. We're always talking about D, E, and I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're going to talk about it a bit more uh, in this conversation. Of course, you link, D, N, uh, you link, that is, D, E, and I to notions of justice, and I'm glad you do that. But for starters, what do you think Dr. King would have to say about D, E, and I as we are addressing it in real time today in this country? I think one of the first things he would say is that we can't link those conversations to old ways of thinking about the systems we're in. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite quotes by him is, the old guard in any society resents new methods, for old guards wear the decorations and medals won by waging battle in the accepted manner. Mm. And I think oftentimes, particularly in corporate spaces, a lot of our DEI practitioners get so immersed in the corporate culture that they don't operate outside of it and thus you have issues with getting progress in some of these things. Uh, I think King, too, in the last three years of his life, in which he is actually in one of the most uh, unpopular times in his mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. uh, because he was challenging some of our economic systems in addition to uh, his comments about the war and other things, um, I think that King would be more revolutionary even today on, on economic justice. Uh, more than we give him credit for. Mm -hmm. No question about that. And uh, that's going to come out very clear, trust me, uh, in our uh, production of The Return uh, on February the 28th, the last day of Black History Month, uh, just a few weeks from now. To your point about uh, holding on to old ways, and that is a powerful King quote. And that's why one of the reasons why we want to do this, uh, this production called The Return. There's so much in King's corpus. There's so much in Malcolm's corpus that we just don't ever wrestle with because we get stuck on these one lines. We know that Malcolm said by any means necessary. We know King talked about uh, the color of the skin versus the content of the character, but we can't go much deeper than that into either one of their uh, uh, works. And so we're going to have some, some, uh, some, some fun and, and learn a lot uh, uh, in Black History Month about uh, both Martin and Malcolm. But you mentioned a moment ago this notion of um, uh, corporate America holding on to old ways when you unpack that King quote so beautifully and so brilliantly. What are some of the old ways that corporate America is holding on to even though we now live in the most multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic America ever? Dr. Patrick Graham? Well, I think when it comes specifically to communities of color, they're still in this whole notion of these communities being at 
risk as opposed to being at opportunity. Mm. Um, and part of that is is because they don't always view black and brown folks as human assets that actually are keys to our future development. We already know by 2044 that the majority of this country uh, will be of color. Mm-hmm. Part of the issue there, too, is is that generation is already born for the most part. And so we have to actually be more engaged with communities, uh, particularly at, uh, at younger levels, but also in terms of how we have housing patterns, other things that are important to our talent development process. I believe that a lot of our corporations are suddenly starting to feel that crunch when we talk about the absence of talent. And I don't think that there's an absence of talent. There's just an under-nurturing of talent because you didn't view them as assets to begin with. And I think that that's part of what we're talking about. We can't just come to the table saying that you need diversity inclusion just because there are people there but also you have to really talk about the value that they provide. Um, and I think that that's uh, that old way of thinking that often prevents us from, from climbing the ladder. Yep, it is true that in Dr. King's final years, he's much more radical. Uh, we discuss that all the time on this program. And uh, certainly if you know anything about Malcolm's work, uh, both Martin and Malcolm uh, were consistently talking, uh, and certainly as they uh, went uh, deeper into their work and witness, talking much more uh, uh, about silver rights, S-I-L-V-E-R, than they were about civil rights, C-I-V-I-L. Uh, and uh, we're going to probe into that, uh, probe that and dig into that a bit more as we move through this hour. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Patrick Graham, uh, public policy leader for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, former president and CEO of the King Center in Long Island. And we're going to talk throughout this hour uh, about community wealth building and empowering black people in the areas, the arenas of employment, education, and housing. We'll come back to that notion of under-nurturing versus absence. We'll talk more about at-risk versus at-opportunity. A great deal to unpack in this first hour with our guest, Dr. Patrick Graham, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Dr. Patrick Graham on KBLA Talk 1580. Just getting started in this hour, uh, talking about uh, wealth building and empowering our people in um, a number of areas uh, and arenas, specifically employment, education, and housing. Uh, we now live in the most multicultural, multiracial, multi-ethnic America ever. You heard Dr. Patrick Graham say a moment ago, as we've discussed on this program heretofore, that we are moving uh, ever so swiftly toward that moment when America will become uh, a nation, uh, majority-minority, where people of color outnumber uh, our white brothers and sisters for the very first time. And that's going to present some interesting challenges. Challenges like what, Dr. Patrick Graham? I think there's a, a few challenges. One is that currently in our public education school systems, there are larger portions of people of color in those communities, yet they uh, live in communities where they don't always have access to economic development, um, to amenities, and other things that provide a, a well-rounded development for talent. Um, I think what's interesting is this. In 1990, America ranked sixth in the world for education and health. Mm -hmm. And part of that was that some of the Brown versus the Board of Education decisions started to have some fruit. 
Um, you're talking about 40% of the schools not being segregated anymore, et cetera. And by the time that we reached the end of the 90s, we had gutted three major civil rights decisions, mm. uh, and especially pertaining to desegregation. And that's what the Oklahoma City versus Dowell in 91, Freeman versus Pitts in 92, which basically uh, eliminated court supervision for district desegregation plans. Of course, you had the Charlotte Megaler Board of Education uh, in 99, um, which was reversed. That decision originally made in 71, uh, busing, things of that nature, those type of tools were moved. And so you also had at that same time the gutting of most of your trades and traditional shop programs, what we call today career technical education. Mm-hmm. Um, you have also, obviously, the crime bill. Uh, that um, also desegregated many of us through incarceration. And by the time we reached the mid-2000s, America ranked 27th Mm. in the world for education and health. Part of that is because we did not view, and through our own policies, you can see it, many of these communities of color as valuable assets. We actually went with, our, with America's particularly white self-interest in resegregating our communities, uh, particularly based on race as well as class. Mm. And that has actually harmed us. So one of the things I want us to really get an understanding is that black folks and brown folks, their actual success is very much tied to our success as a nation. And that statistically there is just one example that clearly shows how that works. Um, today we have several folks in industries that tell us they're short on skills, for example. I'll give you one example. The National Association for Manufacturers, where you have advanced manufacturing jobs, they're saying they're going to be about 2.4 million advanced manufacturing jobs will be unfilled by 2028. And we're talking about no longer the type of manufacturing jobs our parents worked in, Mm -hmm. but we're talking about robotics, other advanced technology jobs where people can make six-figure salaries. So think about how many of our young people could be in those type of roles had they had they're exposed in yeah. the right way. Let me and let actually locate your resource. No, I didn't mean Go to ahead. cut you off. I'm sorry. You made a you making a point. I didn't mean to cut you off. There are a few things that you said uh, uh, just now that I want to interrogate. If I can, let me jump right quick um, to this one number uh, to begin. Number one, you were you were detailing um, the the ways in which we have uh, as a nation fallen so dramatically. Um, so precipitously in some of these uh, rankings. And I'm trying to juxtapose two things in my own mind that I don't think we spend enough time uh, really delving into, and that is how on so many fronts and in so many ways, and the data in this regard is incontrovertible, uh, but the data suggests a different story than we advance in our, uh, in our politics, uh, in our, our chest beating, as it were. So we continue to advance this notion of American exceptionalism, but at the same time, uh, in category after category after category, the numbers tell a different story. Um, we chant USA, USA, USA all the time. 
Uh, and yet the numbers tell a different story. So while we're advancing this notion that we're the best uh, and the brightest and we're all that and then some, we are the U.S. of A., American exceptionalism, the numbers, the data in a, in a, in a variety of sectors paint a very different story. How do you juxtapose those two things? Well, I think that one is obviously our ideology. Mm -hmm. Um, We still believe deeply in the notion of meritocracy, that anyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And um, while personal responsibility is important, we know now that systems actually play a large role in the decisions that people can make, and not just make, but what they have access to. Mm -hmm. And I think until we actually come to grips with that, for one, that the notion of meritocracy is not necessarily something that's totally true or accurate, um, that will forever be one of the impediments for us to understand. Anytime you change systems, you got to change mindset first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're challenging a deep belief system has lasted for so long, and mainly to justify why some people have and why some people don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. So we've got to get past that. I think the other is that we have... Um, sort of drank our own Kool-Aid to the point uh, where other advancing nations have really been very strategic about focusing on the advancement of, of their, their talent. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a perfect example. America right now has about 6% of its high school students enrolled in career technical education programs. Germany actually has 59% enrolled. Mm. Switzerland, 64%. Even Japan is 25%. All of these entities recognize the marriage between industry, entrepreneurship, and education at very early levels, whereas we do not. And, and so the question is, why is it taking us so long to get there? Yeah, why, why, why is that a blind spot for us? Well, I think, one... We have sort of rode the wave of that exceptionalism for some time. We are, are very good at innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's, I think, occurring is that as these other countries have advanced, they actually realize the value in actually producing things. Mm. Um, we don't necessarily always produce tangible goods. Uh, as much anymore. Mm-hmm. We we do produce ideas. We produce media. We produce culture. Mm-hmm. But that you you can't eat that. Uh, there's an African proverb: you can't eat your beauty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that that's one of that's one of my critiques of Wall Street. Um, I ain't mad at anybody for playing the market. Uh, but these, uh, these, these, uh, these, these commodities and these swaps and all the money that's being made uh, on Wall Street is being made, but we ain't producing nothing. When you actually think about the money that uh, that changes hands, uh, courtesy of the activity on Wall Street, what are we actually producing? They're making money hand over fist on Wall Street, but they're actually not really producing anything. I ain't got time to get into that today, but it's one of my major critiques of uh, of um, of Wall Street and our capitalist structure that all this money is changing hands. But for what? It, we're not we're not buying and selling. We're not really trading anything. We're just passing money around because we're actually not producing anything when you process it. Again, another conversation for another day. I do want to ask right quick. I've got two minutes here before news, traffic, and sports will continue, Dr. Graham, on the other side. But you said something powerful a few moments ago that I want to get you to uh, kind of unpack for me right quick here. 
And that is whether or not you believe that even in 2023, after an African-American president, while we have an African-American vice president, and the list goes on and on and on of all these African-Americans, these black faces in high places, does America truly believe, as King would say, that our destiny as the people is inextricably linked, tied together? Put another way, does America see black America as critical and crucial to its ultimate success? No, I don't think so. Mm. Um, actually, I see we're going in reverse. Mm. I mean, we can talk about the increase in hate crimes, other things. We can talk about police brutality. We can talk about all these things. But ultimately, where it really shows up is how you treat our young people. Mm. Um, when you talk about the, also the segregated conditions in which many of them live, and I'm not just talking about racially segregated, but economically segregated conditions uh, that they live in. Um, when you think about the fact that, um, and I'm going to give you a perfect example, we all know that when it came to wealth, right, we know that up until 68, 98% of all home loans went to white households. Mm-hmm. Well, in this re- past year, the market study did a study that showed that African-Americans were 80% more likely not to receive a loan even when they had the same credit score and income as their white counterpart. And what they discovered with that is that there were algorithms built in that would account for wealth, right? And what I found interesting about that is that really what you were doing was punishing people twice for what you did to them. Hold that thought, Dr. Graham. Hold hold that thought. We're going to come back to that notion of punishing people twice for what uh, you were doing to them. Let's let's hold that thought. We'll come right back to that, I promise, when we come forward in our conversation about wealth building and empowering people uh, in our community in a variety of areas, employment, education, housing. We'll get back to that point. Uh, that data uh, data point he's uh, dissecting right now when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where everybody is somebody and nobody is a stranger. You belong here. You do indeed belong here, and I'm delighted to have you here with us today in this first hour. Our guest is Dr. Patrick Graham, uh, public policy leader for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. We'll get to that justice issue a little bit later. I can promise you that. Former president and CEO of the Martin Luther King uh, Center on Long Island and currently the CEO of We Build Concord. Uh, and I'm delighted to have him in um, uh, this hour for a conversation about uh, community wealth building, empowering our people and a number of areas, including employment, education, and housing. Uh, but before news, traffic, and sports, he was just humming up, uh, just tuning up. And I want to come right back to that point that he made that um, with regard to housing specifically, uh, data suggests that, that 80%, that black people rather, are 80% more likely still. It's 2023. Black folk are 80% still more likely to be denied a home loan even when they have the same credit score. He was making this powerful point that I want him to uh, complete uh, and this uh, this uh, notion that he raised that we're being punished twice for what they have done to us, being punished twice for what they've done to us. I love that line. Dr. Graham, take it away. Finish your point, sir. Oh, thank you. So when you think about the fact that we're 80% more likely to deny those loans, one of the things they found is that in the algorithms, when you're determining certain factors of eligibility, they somehow included this notion of passed down wealth. Mm-hmm. Well, I want you to think about the fact that they stopped you from actually accumulating the wealth that many of the middle class did 
right, in the 20th century through actually ownership, right? Mm-hmm. So in this case, what happens is that now you're using that as a basis to discriminate, right, put some people out when you didn't allow them to do that in the first place. Mm. So, and in other words, you are punishing them twice. So the question was, and I just used that as an example, is do, does America see us as part of their future in many ways? And the reason I say no is because if you are intentional, right, you wouldn't let that happen. You were very intentional about stopping people from actually accessing economic opportunity. So you have to be intentional about giving access to that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads me um, to this notion uh, that you also raised earlier that I want to give you a chance to uh, uh, expound on for us, and that is why uh, the black community perennially, uh, to my mind, Dr. Graham, if I'm wrong about that, you can disabuse me of this notion, but to my mind, uh, the black community is perennially seen as at risk versus, as you put it, at opportunity. Why always are we seen through this prism of being at risk versus at opportunity, again, to use your phrase? Well, I think one is because if you can define people as as risk, right, that actually places a lot of self-responsibility and it doesn't account for systems at all. Mm -hmm. So really that whole notion of risk is how you're viewing them. Um, But when you think about people at at opportunity, and when I originally coined that term uh, some several years ago, the reason was is that if you don't invest in risk, as much as you invest in opportunities. Hello. So first you have to shift. Again, when you talk about systems change, you got to shift the way that you're thinking about something. And I said, as simple as that sounds, it plays a big role. I remember at the National Urban League Conference uh, in New Orleans some 10 years ago uh, discussing that very issue mm-hmm. of how we actually viewed not just ourselves but how others viewed us. And how much that plays. And when we talk about intersectionality and other things, I mean, this is really one of the keys to it. Um, And I think also that one of the issues that even in looking at ourselves as opportunities is that we often also within our group get into this race for victimization and leveraging that. And Mm -hmm. let me just tell you what I mean. I think that we have created also and been subject to unnecessary gender wars within the black community. Mm. And I think that what is caused is us to actually pit one against the other. Uh, women against men, men against women. Um, I'm watching a lot of the dialogue, and it's what I call binary or bipolar patriarchal thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very harmful to us because what it says is that only certain groups, in this, in many cases now in corporate America, black women, not as much so much with black men being the focus, can only thrive. And I think that that's also an issue that we have to discuss, and it's one that we don't like to talk about, mm-hmm. but I think it's one that's real. We're going to talk about it right now. That's what we do here on Unapologetically Progressive KBLA Talk is we say we don't black down. Uh, I don't black down from I don't black down from tough conversations. So let's go there. Um, Let me ask the obvious question, at least to my mind. Um, Who's doing the taunting? Who is doing the taunting and who benefits from the infighting? Well, I I think one, obviously, white power structure benefits from that. And this is not new. Mm hmm. Um, if you think about it, any patriarchal society, 
you try first, right, eliminate the, the patriarchy within a group mm-hmm. in their mind, right? So um, when you think about uh, past segregation laws, a lot of that was based on also the thought of miscegenation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I mean, even though they were really economic and social projects, they used miscegenation as the fear tactic. Well, did you think that they feared uh, black women going out sleeping with white men, or did you think that the fear was that black men would sleep with white women? Mm-hmm. That's actually a real question. It is. <laughs> right? <laughs> so the point, is, um, <laughs> the point is that even in with that, Right. There was this notion that you have to right, uh, financially, socially and actually in terms of, of ability to be protected. You had to castrate mm-hmm. many of these these black men. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we see that slightly now in a lot of our conversations. Um, and while I think it's important, I was raised by a mom who was uh, a very strong advocate for justice rights. We need to have and continue to have more of our women excel economically, independently, in many ways, alongside black men who also need to do those things. So it's not okay to have one group begin to excel and still have another over the last 20 years represent the highest unemployment rates across race and gender. Yeah. Uh, such as black men. So we have to find that balance. I think that we've been placed in, in uh, a spot where we have been competing mm-hmm. um, as if there's not enough room for both of us. Um, and we have to be, as me as a black male, I have to be more to you in this community than just a person's body that you can galvanize a movement over. Mm-hmm. Wow. I have to be able to be part of the, the new economic dream and success that you want for our community. I, I, I'd call that a mic drop moment. What you just said just now, uh, you could have just dropped the mic and walked off the stage. I'm glad you didn't because I got a few more things to talk to you about. But that that was a mic drop moment <laughs> right there. Let me just, let me just ask you, since you went there, as I said, we don't black down. Ain't nobody, anybody scared of you, Dr. Graham? I ain't scared. So let me just let me just ask <laughs> let me just ask you this um, with regard to that infighting, that intra uh, battle, uh, vis-a-vis, uh, black America. Um, the data again, as, as I see it, and if I'm wrong, you can again, disabuse me of this notion, but the data, as I see it, suggests that black women are really doing their thing. They've taken off in a way. And in so many ways they are doing far better than, than, than black men. I'm talking economically, uh, educationally and in other uh, arenas that we could talk about. Uh, now to my mind, and I've said many times and people debate me on this, I'm open to that. I think black men are the most maligned group of folk in the history of the nation. That is not to suggest, uh, you mentioned miscegenation a moment ago, not to suggest that black women haven't taken it on the chin uh, as well. But I think black men are the most maligned group of folk in the history of this country. That said, whether I'm right or wrong about that is really not the point. The point is, or the question is, uh, whether or not we've arrived at a point in our relationships inside of black America, since you went there, I'm going to, again, probe it a little deeply, a little more deeply, whether or not you think that black men are jealous or envious of black women, and that is part of the reason we compete with each other. And I, I, I note, um, you're the you're the doctor here, uh, the, the the PhD, but I, I, I um, I'm learned enough mm-hmm. to know that there is a distinct difference between envy and jealousy. I say all the time to people that jealousy can be underlined can be jealousy can be rooted in love, envy never is. 
Uh, so I make a distinction between mm-hmm. jealousy and envy. But the question is whether or not black men are now jealous or envious of black women. I'm looking at my clock. Let me hold that question on the other side. We will get Dr. Patrick Graham's response to that question. Are black men envious or jealous of black women these days? And is that part of what's causing this competition, this infighting, as it were? You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. That's what we're trying to do here. Uh, uh, expand your inventory of ideas and uh, cause you to re-examine the assumptions you hold. And we do that unapologetically. Our guest in this hour, Dr. Patrick Graham, uh, to that question now that I posed a moment ago, given what uh, you laid out uh, in terms of a frame uh, about the infighting uh, that happens, the competition that happens amongst the black men and black women. Uh, are black men envious or are black men jealous of uh, of black women. And let me just read this right quick. A number of comments coming through. I want to just read this right quick uh, before you even answer. Sure. One of them said, Tabis, I hear your question, but I actually think many black men are more broken and pained than they are envious or jealous. Take it away, Dr. Graham. Well, actually, I agree with the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, I do agree with that statement. I don't think that it's a matter of envy. I think that, um, one, Black males in particular are just not very empathetic victims. We've already painted them in such a way as being predators um, that it's hard to undo that uh, when you've got centuries of of that type of characterization. Mm-hmm. So that's one. I think, too, um, there's probably, I wouldn't categorize black men, uh, many of them, as either envious or jealous, I, I look at it as more frustrated. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, we're saying that we need you to protect and to provide, right? And old patriarchal thought. Um, but at the same time, too, again, you're denied certain opportunities and represent the high, those with the highest unemployment rate across race and gender. Mm-hmm. You actually, young black males, are the fastest growing group uh, across race and gender to commit suicide. Yes, right. So when you think about that, these are a lot of, of, of pressures that are placed there, um, which in turn also places a lot of pressure to, again, uh, traditionally and historically, on, on black women. But my real point is is that I don't think the focus and uh, the infighting should be occurring between ourselves, because mm-hmm. um, here's the deal. I've got daughters and sons. I need black girl and black boy magic. Um, I need them both to thrive, mainly because we're coming from the same communities. I've had black women give me opportunities, and I've had black, I've given black women opportunities. As a matter of fact, three of the individuals that I've mentored in my career that uh, were black women went on to be CEOs themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so my point there is I need black women to thrive, but I also need us to thrive. Um, I know it's Eddie Kendrick, you know, baby, you need a change of mind. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm all for for women's rights, but, um, you know, I want equal nights. And I'm not talking about in the bedroom. I'm talking about literally um, I need to also be at the table. I'm, I'm wondering, um, as you're talking, whether or not, uh, just put a final, uh, just a buttonhole this quite quick, whether or not um, black men see certain people. Uh, namely black women, as enemies rather than allies? No, I haven't necessarily. I, I've seen pockets of that. Right. And I've seen pockets 
of of it in reverse. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember some uh, black men saying that black women are siding with with white patriarchy in many ways, and I've had um, black women call uh, black men the weakest link. Um, but if anything really sort of can illustrate something for us, think about this last election. Uh, remember the Georgia runoff mm-hmm. and how. 81% of black men voted the way that black women voted, right? Right. right. Um, yet there was this talk about, you know, losing all of these black men. And meanwhile, white women, well over close to 60% of them voted the opposite of black women. <laughs> and I said, so, you know, I'm not your problem. I'm actually yeah. <laughs> still in <the> corner. <laughs> point, point, point well taken, point well taken. When we come forward... <laughs> I take your point. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Dr. Patrick Graham, we're going to talk about this issue of justice. I promise to get to that, and I will, because it's not just about D, E, and I. How do you connect that to justice? Our guest is Dr. Patrick Graham on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. I got just over three minutes left here with Dr. Patrick Graham. Two things I want to cover right quick in these three minutes. Number one, this notion of justice. Um, it seems to me that you can't talk about D, E, and I, uh, as you do so brilliantly, without connecting it to justice. How do you do that, Dr. Graham? Well, I think one is that your practices of DEI have to actually have the end goal of justice, meaning that you reverse the wrongs of the past and provide new opportunities in the future. And if you're not really focused on righting wrongs, um, then justice is not going to be accessible. And mm. I'll give you just a quick example. Mm. In some of the communities I work with, even with affordable housing, I realized that they were denied certain things when it comes to affordable housing. So I've, I actually focus a lot there on ownership, for example, with them, along with talking to corporate sponsors about how their workforce, uh, their talent will be coming out of these communities and how they need to engage them more um, as a way also to reverse what had been co- what caused the conditions in the first place. Mm-hmm. And if that's not your end goal, if you have diversity plus equity plus inclusion and it doesn't have an equal justice, then those are just words. You're going you're gonna to be spinning in circles yeah. with those three, three notions. Yeah. So- sounding brass and tinkling cymbal, right? Sounding brass and tinkling cymbal right. if it's not connected to notions of uh, of justice. Uh, last question here. Um, we were talking about the fact that some years from now we're going to be a majority minority country for the first time ever. Uh, and you made the point, which is accurate, that uh, in many ways America is resegregating in 90 seconds. How do you square those two things that we're becoming more multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic? We're, we're, we're becoming a majority minority nation and yet we're resegregating at the same time. We're resegregating out of fear. Yeah. yeah. Um, the whole notion is that more people look different from white folks and others. We we tend to, uh, you know, look at that in a fearful way. And, again, looking at people as competition instead of, you know, health healthy competition um, with the notion that people all have to thrive if America's going to thrive. You know, and I'll leave it at this. You know, George Friedman, Friedman wrote a book, The Next Hundred Years, mm-hmm. and he talks about how each continent, right, has had its day and time uh, over the course of history. And if we 
are not to the point where we're going to be inclusive of black and brown folks um, and provide justice for them to compete and to be part of our economic dream, we will find ourselves as one of those continents that now are looking towards others instead of leading. Every empire has its day. Every empire has its reckoning. I take your point loud and clear. Dr. Patrick Graham, public policy leader for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, former president and CEO of the Martin Luther King Center, uh, Long Island, and currently the CEO of We Build Concord. I've enjoyed this conversation and been empowered by it immensely, Dr. Graham. Good to have you on. We'll do it again, sir.